The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and hi, everybody, and welcome. Stocks are rising today on optimism that the economy is starting to reopen across the country. The Nasdaq is now just less than 1% away from turning positive for the year. Right now, it's up just under 2%. The S&P is up 1.6%. The Dow's up 1.4%, 333 points. Oil is also a driver of today's rally. It's now on pace for a five-day win streak. Let's check on WTI crude. It's up 21% right now. It's come a little bit off the high. No, it's, it's actually extended them, as you can see here. I misread that for a second. We're now at 24.72 a barrel. So we just continued to gain as we move throughout the session today. Even the president took note of this rise today, tweeting that, quote, oil prices are moving up nicely as demand begins again. Let's start with Bob Bassani, who has more on the demand situation, this move higher in the market, Bob, and everything that's contributing. Yeah, uh, energy really on a tear right now. A bit of a breakout. Who would have thought you'd say that? Uh, but oil's up five days in a row. So energy's leading, retail's leading. Three to one, advancing to declining stocks again today. The second day in a row, we've had a nice uh, advanced decline line at the breadth, as we call it. There's the S&P 500. We're, on, we're in a trading range the last three weeks. We're on 100 points at either side of roughly 28.50 on the S&P 500. Uh, I think the important thing is while we're seeing energy retail do well today, it's big cap momentum, guys. Uh, Kelly mentioned NASDAQ near new highs. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, all up 2% today. I mean, the market's going to move when the big five all move like that in a single day, even with some other stocks moving as well. Helping the markets today, a lot of reopening optimism, as Kelly mentioned, but also a nice bounce in oil. We've got Treasury uh, officials talking about no plans to punish China overall. ISM services a little bit better than feared, I think, and that's helping a little bit of signs of stabilization uh, there as well. So some optimistic data points there to look at besides the reopening thing. One thing I just want to point out very quickly, you get a little real, uh, realization of what's going on. Bloom and Brands reported some numbers today uh, for the weekend and Sunday. Now, they own Outback Steakhouse. Outback Steakhouse comparable restaurant sales were down 38 percent. That gives you an idea of what we're dealing with right now. There's just one simple data point, but numbers are still pretty grim overall. Kelly, back to you. Absolutely, Bob. We're going to pick up on that point. And thank you, Bob Bassani. In fact, we've got a big, ugly data point looming over us. The April jobs report due out this Friday. Everyone agrees it's going to be terrible. But what will the economy look like in the months beyond that? That's not as clear. And it depends on who you ask right now. Steve Leisman joins me with his rapid update on third quarter growth. Steve, what's the picture starting to look like? Well, it's pretty strong, uh, Kelly, actually. And you got to think a lot of the optimism that's really animating the market right now is based on these forecasts for a pretty decent third quarter rebound. Let me show you the rapid update. This is the median of a dozen or the average of a dozen economists on the street. Look at that big, ugly 34 percent decline in the second quarter. But that's followed by a 16 percent rebound in the third quarter. All of these are quarter on quarter annualized. Uh, 12 percent in the fourth quarter, 7 percent in the first quarter, 21. But note that it's not quite 
quite a V because even with the bounce back in the third and fourth quarter, the average for 2020 is still down 5%. At least that's where it is now. So we know the conventional wisdom, which is that we get back to work, the economy snaps back. Let's take a look, though, at the other side, some of the rebound bears that are out there. They include Bank of America down 1% for the third quarter. RSM up only one and a half, Oxford 7.7. That compares with the average of 16% for the group as a whole. Okay, so let me uh, tell you what they're thinking. Michelle Meyer, uh, I talked to her yesterday. She says to me, this is such a painful and shocking recession that there will be residual pain. I don't expect business to start reinvesting right away. The idea is that they won't be investing in structures and capital and uh, oil rigs and all the stuff that they invest in. That'll keep growth down, in her opinion. Another problem, Joe Buswellis at RSM says he's concerned about us getting back to work too soon. So based on what I've seen and I'm hearing, I think we're at risk of another mini wave in the third and fourth quarter and households will continue to self-police. So two problems there for the bears. One is that they don't believe the animal spirits will be reignited quite as quickly as some of the uh, the general group, Kelly. The other problem is that they're concerned about this getting back to work so quickly. Either uh, it will fail or that people won't go. Kelly? Right, exactly. Uh, Steve, thanks. We appreciate it, Steve Leisman. Let's move on and talk about the market reaction to all of this. If the country continues to reopen, as many states uh, have done, is a V-shaped rebound still possible? And if not, what happens to the market? Joining me now are Steve Whiting. He's the Global Chief Investment Strategist at City Private Bank. And Jim Karen is Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Jim, I'll start with you because you do think the market and the economy are at odds here. Yeah, they, they are. I mean, look, I mean, as Steve was laying out, this is really about the path and the pace of the reopening. Yes, economic demand exists, but that's not the whole story, right? I mean, we do expect there to be a U-shaped recovery, but again, that's not the whole story. The, the, the key question that we just don't know is when the economy opens, does it stay open? And does it stay open universally across the United States or are there parts of the United States that starts to uh, it starts to close back down again? This is going to matter in terms of earnings. This is going to matter in terms of default risks. This is this is the key issue that we have to look forward to what the market is assuming. And I'm on board with this is that when the U.S. economy reopens, it's more than likely going to stay open. But I also think it's going to be a slow opening. And that means that, you know, earnings and incomes are going to be coming in, but it's going to be slow and consumption will be there. But again, it will probably be somewhat slow, but enough to get a significant rebound in the third quarter compared to the second quarter. And then the fourth quarter should also show some improvement as well. You know, Steve, I think it's interesting because instead of the either or of the markets and the economy here, you've come up with a new way uh, to kind of look at equities, which and credits uh, into COVID cyclicals and COVID defensives. Can you explain what kind of broadly speaking is in each of those baskets? Well, look, I think it explains a great deal of why large cap U.S. equities, particularly NASDAQ, has done so well compared to small caps in the United States, global equities. That if you think about digital disruptors, e-commerce, which is in discretionary, um, information technology content, Uh, whether this is the provider of video conferences, whether uh, this is software that is running all of these systems, the impact on those industries is really minimal. You combine healthcare and staples, and U.S. large-cap shares have the largest component in exactly those industries, you know, by far in the world. And so if you scale down, if you think about energy-centric 
uh, type of uh, type of economies you can see, for example, you know, really uh, just the com- complete opposite. Why Latin America, for example, in U.S. dollar terms is at a 50 percent equity decline. So if you basket these different industries, explain you can explain that. a lot of what is going on uh, in markets generally. Sure. So, so Steve, uh, restate that for a moment, just so everybody's on the same page with you. Why do you what do you think explains the fact that uh, Latin America is down 50 percent? It's the components, um, energy, for example, where we've seen jet fuel uh, decline, where we've seen demand for transportation fuels, um, petroleum. And again, this is for parts of the world, again, in parts of our market, which are relatively small in market cap. Now, it is um, a higher component of the U.S. high-yield market. Uh, but if you think about um, equities markets generally, other regions of the world are, have much higher weightings. Uh, in industries, you know, again, devastated by this by this impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you take a look inside the U.S. stock market, things like retailing in general, away from e-commerce, travel, tourism, uh, and industrial activity, which is highly dependent on being, you know, physical demand for commodities, those are, uh, again, COVID cyclical industries. And I'd also throw in something that is normally rather a defensive component, which is real estate. It's not all real estate, uh, but a good deal of commercial real estate covering retailing, covering office space Mm -hmm. that would traditionally be defensive in the COVID impact, we think makes it um, a cyclical weak area. Right. I'll let you, uh, Jim, kind of circle back to what you would tactically recommend here, um, whether it's, you know, across equities or across fixed income. So the best opportunities that we see right now are really across fixed income. And after all, that's what I do. I'm a fixed income portfolio manager. But I would say that it's in the investment grade area because this is the area that has the most policy support. The Fed is supporting this segment of the market. But, you know, as Steve is saying, you've got to be very, very selective. It's not just about buying the index. It's about buying sectors within the end index and bonds within each sector. You may not want to have a big retailer that needs a lot of people shopping at one time in close proximity, that might not be the best bet today. But if you buy the index, you might just get all of those different types of uh, strategies. So the way that we think about this is that you've got to be very idiosyncratic, very active, and you've got to be very decision-orientated in terms of what you're buying and what you're putting into your portfolio. It's really, as you know, we like to say, it's a stock picker's market. It's a bond picker's market. And this is the way that we think about constructing portfolios and looking at the post-COVID or the yeah, reopening yeah. period. Yeah, bond funds can be tricky at any time, but maybe especially right now. Uh, Jim Karen, Steve Whiting, thank you both for the suggestions. We appreciate it talking about these markets today. And don't forget to tune in for an exclusive interview. Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida, his first interview since last week's Fed meeting, is coming up on the closing bell today at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Looking forward to that. Coming up here from a beautiful relationship to an abuse of power, WeWork founder Adam Newman changing his tune on SoftBank and suing his one-time biggest backer. The details and fallout of this big brewing battle. Plus, as Disney gets set to report earnings tonight, what will the company look like in a post-COVID world? Will packed theme parks and full theaters no longer be a driving force for the entertainment giant? We'll explore that. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, and what a story this is. Uh, WeWork co-founder Adam Newman is suing one-time ally SoftBank, accusing the company and its founder, Masa Sun, of an abuse of power. Deirdre Bosa is here with the latest details for us. Deirdre? Kelly, Adam Newman's poor corporate governance and business dealings have been exposed and well documents. What this lawsuit could do is reveal more of SoftBank's role in the saga. Now, the complaint filed by Adam Newman and his lawyers accuses SoftBank of undermining the part of the bailout that would have paid out billions to him and early shareholders and employees. Kelly, it is also a very dramatic shift from what Newman once called a beautiful relationship with Masasan. It's a real partnership, and I think the longer we know each other, the more we can build it. And Masa is one of the most visionary investors in the world. He, I don't know if you know the story, but his initial decision to invest in WeWork took approximately 28 minutes, including when he got in, left, and drove in the car. Kelly, that's also a reminder of Masa-san's investment style. He often acts with his gut, and that doesn't always work out. Back to you. Uh, Deirdre, stay right there. I want to talk a little bit more about this. Let's bring in David Brown. He's the host of the Wondery podcast, Business Wars, and the We Crash miniseries about the rise and fall of WeWork. He's also managing editor and anchor of the daily public radio news hour, Texas Standard. David, it's great to have you here. Um, so wh- how would you describe, what, what would be the name of this podcast episode uh, for this latest latest well, turn? It, uh, it's funny you should say that. This, uh, uh, this particular turn that... Uh, uh, that Adam was referring to there, where he first meets Masa. Uh, that was uh, that comes in episode four of We Crashed, and it was called Think Crazy. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. Um, as, as most of your listeners, uh, viewers know, uh, Masa is CEO of SoftBank in 2016, and he's a world-renowned unicorn hunter, right? His gamble on Alibaba was small compared with the $4 billion that he put up to get into WeWork. Um, but he only took a 12-minute tour of the facility when he arrived. And the rest of the time was spent in his limousine. And that was it, $4 billion. And suddenly this company, which basically releases office space, it's it's worth more than Ford Motor Company. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think I would be feeling pretty warm and, and fuzzy when it comes to uh, my relationship with SoftBank, at least in the early days. But when it comes to things crazy, Masa Son, as we talk about in episode four of our series, he wants, he wants Adam to push the company to the limits. He's saying, you're not crazy enough. you got to think crazy. And I think, you know, most entrepreneurs who suddenly get $4 billion uh, would feel like, wow, I've just been anointed by this yeah. uh, guru of, uh, you know, this unicorn hunter. I'm, I must be doing the right thing. Yeah, and Deir- so I could see a, a lot of okay. things change, you know. Deirdre, I think you should grab him. Bring him in. <laughs> I, can you hear that? If, if I could venture a title for that podcast episode, uh, let uh, me take our colleague Amanda Lasky's suggestion. Life comes at you pretty fast. We work once valued at $47 billion, now less than $5 billion. A beautiful relationship, now an abuse of power. I think that sums it up. I think you're living that uh, right now, Deirdre. 
<laughs> like comes at you pretty fast. I don't know if the mic could pick it up. <laughs> no, Alyssa, I think everybody out there uh, sympathizes right now. David, I want to return to you in this issue of what next for SoftBank. I mean, I don't know how many millions they might ultimately have to pay out here, but uh, a, a lawsuit is something they can ill afford right now. Well, that's true. Um, but then again, I mean, I've seen a lot of critiques online and social media of how Adam Newman is playing this out. You know, how dare he? It seems to be a sort of a strain that uh, is coming from a lot of people. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not privy to the contract that he had when SoftBank stepped up its, you know, uh, its its uh, recommitment to WeWork. But, you know, if, if there has been a breach of contract, I don't think that uh, uh, Adam has much of a choice here. He's going to have to pursue this. And by the way, a lot of people are under the misimpression that WeWork is kind of uh, tumbling down. From what I can tell, actually, they've made enormous investments in their own company. So they're, they've been growing. Uh, it seems as if the new leadership at WeWork is committed to making it work. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would just count this off as a cynical move on the part of Adam. Okay. Uh, I don't think it's anything like that. Deirdre, I'll give you the last word on that. I, I don't know. I take issue with the fact that WeWork is growing. Rather, I think it's actually trying to shrink. They're cutting costs everywhere they can. They had to come out and reassure investors that they had $4.4 billion in cash and cash equivalents as of the end of last year. And still, I'm not sure that's going to be enough when it faces a recession. Remember, the whole business model is taking out long-term leases and renting them out on shorter terms. What happens there? I think that they're trying to scale back very, very quickly. And you have this visionary, Adam Newman, who was ambitious and masses on pushing him. And now you've got real operators in. Are they going to be able to scale that back fast enough? This story, this point. saga, I think is far from over. No, it's true. We all knew the recession risk for them. But now they have a pandemic that may end office sharing and a recession that we haven't even really fully entered into. Uh, Deirdre right. and David, thank you both. Uh, appreciate your thoughts, Deirdre Bosa and David Brown today. Coming up, it's not your imagination. Food prices are going up with some products jumping 25 percent. We'll get you the details. Plus, while overall U.S. auto sales have sunk by more than half, there is one bright spot in the sector. We'll tell you what it is, why it's bucking the trend and who's benefiting. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Sue Herrera has the headlines. Sue? I do indeed, Kelly. Thank you very much. Here's the latest on the pandemic, pandemic everybody. As you probably know, Pfizer has now begun human trials for its experimental COVID-19 vaccine. In the U.S., CEO Albert Borla calls it 
less than four months time frame between preclinical studies and human testing extraordinary. The experimental vaccine contains genetic material that helps fight the virus by building antigens to invoke an immune response. At least 15 children have been hospitalized with an unknown severe inflammatory illness that may be linked to COVID-19 in New York City. The patients range from 2 to 15 years old. Several have tested positive for COVID-19 or had a positive antibody test result. And former President Barack Obama will address this year's graduating high school seniors as part of Graduate Together, America Honors the High School Class of 2020. The one-hour televised program will air on network TV and all streaming services. As always, you can get more on the coronavirus coverage by heading to CNBC.com. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Okay, Sue, thanks so much. The pandemic has also been putting pressure on the food supply chain, and as a result, the price for certain products has risen sharply. Jane Wells joins us now uh, with more on who, what, and where. Jane? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, meat shortages are real as these packing plants have to close due to worker illness. Now, I want to show you the effect it's having on prices. We've already told you that the livestock producers have a glut of animals. They're selling at a loss when they can sell it all. But look at the price of beef when it leaves the packing plant and goes to the grocery store. This is before the retail market. It is going way up. It's called the box beef cutout price, and the USDA estimates in just one week it's up 24 to 30 percent, depending on the grade. Grocery chains like Costco are limiting how much meat you can buy. And where is the beef at Wendy's? Well, Wendy's uses only fresh beef. And in some places now, it is not selling hamburger. I went on my DoorDash app, only chicken. Uh, Stevens estimates 18 percent of Wendy's stores are currently without beef supplies. Meantime, overall food inflation is about twice the norm right now. Uh, but that could change the opposite if unemployment stays high by the end of the summer. Listen. We also expect to, to see an increase in the amount of promotional reliance uh, that retailers are using to drive traffic into their stores, as well as the amount of promotions that consumers are relying on at the shelf. Yeah, that'll be later. Not now. There are hardly any promotions now. Kelly, bottom line, we have plenty of food. It is the food delivery which is under stress. And right now it's more because of worker health than it is logistics. Back to you. Wow. Yeah, I was just at the store yesterday and thinking about the ground beef price. Maybe I have to check again next week, see if it goes up more. I was just, listen, Jane, I'm so relieved it's there. They could charge me 50, 75 percent mock-up. I'm just so relieved to get it. It's it's funny you should mention that. Certain things are not selling as well. The high-end cuts of meat, which usually go to restaurants, um, there's a potential. Look, you're, you're slaughtering a cow. You may have to turn that filet into ground beef. So it may be very tasty ground beef. <laughs> That's something to keep in mind. I don't want people to, to develop fa- uh, too fancy taste, though, as a result of this. No. Jane, thanks for the reporting. We appreciate it. Jane Wells, some eye-opening stuff. Uh, Coming up, Disney will report earnings after the bell. The stock is down 25% in three months. What will post-COVID Disney look like? And are video games the answer? We'll dig into that. Plus, nearly 4 million homeowners are now in mortgage forbearance plans. It's pretty simple to get in, but what's the path forward out? We'll explore that and shares of Shake Shack in the red today after reporting revenue shy of forecasts and same-store sales dropping nearly 13%. The CEO on Squawk on the Street today sounding a bit more optimistic on how things have looked lately. Listen. Over that last six weeks, we've seen a steady curve up for us. It's really encouraging. Uh, and I'd say it's mostly thanks to our team. You know, we've created these drive-throughs at a Shake Shack that never existed. We never had a drive-through. 
Um, we've created these drive-up curbside lanes, and we've shifted now to over 80% last week of our sales is on our digital channels. Our own app and web channels on Shake Shack have tripled, and the number of first-timers has more than doubled. So it's really exciting because we know that those guests tend to be a little stickier than a normal guest. Uh, and we're working our way back towards dining room reopening. Welcome back to the exchange rally across the board today. One and a half percent for the Dow, almost two percent for the Nasdaq. Dom Chu has more for us. Dom. All right. So, Kelly, it's a day for the bulls for sure. But can it last? That's the big question as major U.S. indices hold on to those gains, as you can see here. Now, at the highs, the Dow was up 420 points. You can see we're up about 350 right now. The S&P was up 56 points at its high. And every sector in the S&P 500 is in the green, as you can see. Healthcare, technology and energy shares all kind of leading the advance. Meanwhile, on the laggard side of things, you have materials, consumer discretionary, and consumer staples. Now, it's that consumer theme that's starting to really emerge on stocks on the move today. We mentioned energy. Chevron shares are a big upside mover as oil prices surge, albeit, yes, off depressed levels, as optimism continues to build about a pickup in demand for fuel as economies really start to reopen and people and businesses try to get back to work. Now, Norwegian Cruise Line is moving in the opposite direction after it warned it may have to seek bankruptcy protection as the virus pandemic shutters demand for leisure travel. Oil prices not helping there either. And keep an eye on shares of Beyond Meat as the maker of plant-based meat alternatives reports earnings after today's closing bell as supply chain issues remain for traditional meat processors. Three stocks on the move today. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. That's a good point about Beyond Meat, the substitution effect. Dom, thanks. Dom Chu. Let's check in on Disney shares, which are uh, now down about 1% as the company gets ready to report after the bell today. It's been a rough ride for Disney with the stock down more than 25% in three months. Julia Borson has more on what we can expect to hear today. Julia? Well, Kelly, the focus for Disney will be less on its first quarter results when the full impact of coronavirus wasn't felt yet and more on guidance for the impact on its coming quarters, on coronavirus in the coming quarters. Now, especially for the parks division, once the fastest growing profit driver at Disney now expected to be the biggest drag in results. Investors want to hear how much closures will cost, when parks will reopen and how the company will weigh the cost of low attendance. Now, at the studio division, we'll be listening for the company's outlook on theatrical audiences returning to theaters for the debut of Mulan in July and how it's thinking about its reliance on those theatrical releases. Over at the TV division, the question is how deep an ad recession and what kind of cord cutting the media giant is seeing. Now, one bright spot, of course, is Disney Plus, which hit 50 million paying subscribers far faster than expected. Kelly? All right, Julia, thank you very much. My next guest, both say that Disney's challenges run deep and will require more than just time to cure them. For more, I'm joined by James Chuck Monk. He's a partner at Clock Wise Capital, and Ed Lee is corporate media reporter for the New York Times. Good to see both of you. Um, Ed, I'll just start with you and on kind of the, the longer standing issue about ESPN and about cord cutting. You have people now asking for refunds uh, for, you know, sports channels that they ended up not airing the sports that they were looking for. This was typically in the past the big earnings juggernaut for Disney. What is it today? I mean, it still has to be pretty significant. Oh, yeah, it's 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 huge. I mean, ESPN has been the biggest sort of one of the biggest profit drivers for Disney um, and sports. Right. There's no sports. No one's really tuning in. On top of that, as you mentioned uh, at the top of the segment, you know, core cutting is a huge factor. So here's the thing. Even when sports comes back uh, and advertising supposedly does, there's just going to be fewer people who are on their on their pay TV account in the first place. So 
you know, ESPN was always one of the most expensive line items for cable operators and satellite operators. And so, you know, if there's a chance that uh, people have defected because of the current situation, it's, a, it's not going to make a difference if you have sports. So that's the longer term hit, even if and when sports comes back. And Ed, what about Disney Plus? Uh, you say it, it, despite having 50 million paid subscribers, it might not be enough. It may not be. I mean, uh, so Disney Plus is going to be the one bright spot uh, if, you know, say Netflix and Amazon, they were made for these times. Um, Disney is exactly not. I mean, theme parks and sports and going to movie theaters, these are all things you can't do. Disney Plus is the one thing you can do. So they're going to certainly see an uptick from that. So so is Hulu. But the thing is, they probably started a little too late just in anticipation of this current time. And it's also not going to be big enough to replace what they're losing from these other things. So it's always been a long-term effort for uh, Disney Plus in terms of ultimately replacing uh, what the declining cable subs, but mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit late right now, and it's it's not it's not going to be big enough to meet to be meaningful. Uh, hopefully, they'll give us good guidance going into this what this current quarter looks like for them, but it's not going to replace the, the big losses elsewhere. So, James, let's turn to some of the assertions you've made, which are super interesting. That you think they should do more in the video gaming space, maybe even an acquisition. <laughs> Why are you putting such emphasis into this area for the future? Right. Yeah, you have a great headline with Disney Plus, you know, with the 50 million subs. But if you really want to be honest with yourself, Disney is facing more secular challenges than any other company. You know, everything that they do revolves around large crowds getting together, live sports, movie theaters, theme parks. But the reality is when you look at this company, 90 percent of their business is on the decline. And the one bright spot is about 10 percent of their business. Disney Plus is actually losing money. So we think that given the behavioral shifts that we're seeing with all the technology move forward and people having more time on their hands and spending more time at home, we really think that they have to go after gaming in a very, very big way. And, uh, and if they don't, we think it's gonna be, there's going to be a gaping hole in that ecosystem that there's simply just not going to be able to fill but James, uh, what by following the old playbook. When we start to reopen and you know, people aren't at, at home with as much time on their hands, I mean, should they change their business model so much to match the current climate um, or not? And further, what's their edge on video games? You know, are you suggesting they develop more Disney-based video games or that they just buy an outright provider of video game content? I think that they have to go bold, big and bold, the same way that they've done with live sports, throwing billions at it to acquire these rights, acquire these uh, audiences and eyeballs. And and I think if they don't, because the fact of the matter is, yes, things can open up, but behavior is changing. There's a reason why Activision, you know, cites, um, uh, well, I should say Netflix cites uh, uh, Fortnite and YouTube as competitors, because it's, it's no longer about controlling distribution. Con- content is emerging from everywhere. So if people are spending more time on the screen, there needs to be a way to monetize that con- uh, that, uh, that, that, those eyeballs. Because the fact of the matter is Disney is predicated on maximizing lifetime value. And if you're not doing the things and behaving in the way that you used to, they're not going to be able to extract value um, on top of the uh, the subscription that they're trying to get from Disney+. Plus. Yeah, fair enough. And to your point, Activision has named Disney itself as, in proxy statements as a competitor now. So, Ed, I'll, I'll give you the final point here on whether video games is a better way to get in front of the consumer going forward um, or what other kind of splashy options Disney has. I, I like that idea a lot. I think video games is a really smart play in the absence of sports, but even – in the future, in near or farther future, when sports does comes back, 
video games going to be that much more important. I think the bigger sort of uh, narrative here is going to be how much time will investors give Disney because it's going to take maybe a year, two years or more for theme parks to really come back, for movie theaters really come back to its place. And if they can't weather that timeline or, or if investors are, are sort of getting sort of impatient with that timeline, I don't know. I kind of feel like Disney becomes a takeover target. I mean, it's wow. a great, great business. It's a great, lots of great assets. But it's again, it's it's a matter of the waiting game. How much longer will investors give them? And if it, they, they can't turn around sooner or, or investors are impatient, I don't know. I mean, you could see Apple coming in and, and wanting to take, a, mm. take it or take a piece of it anyway. It's so. amazing how they've gone from an absolute darling uh, to a potential takeover target. We got to go. But Ed, you, is that your wine grape varietal? chart over your shoulder there are you, <laughs> yes, you really into that come on you don't believe all this I, stuff i totally love all this stuff are yeah. you kidding me any chance i get to kind of do the research and remember exactly where grapes <laughs> come from so yeah you you spotted sort of one of my own you know yeah my own personal things but i go uh, with happy- what's on sale <laughs> what's the cheapest <laughs> That's the Sometimes that's, that's also strategy. really good, too. So. <laughs> Thank you both. Ed Lee, James Chuck Muck, it's good to see you. And we look forward to Disney's report after the bell today. Still ahead, the airlines have received billions of dollars from the federal government to keep workers employed and operations running. But United is now saying it'll still have to do layoffs. We'll look at what's behind that decision next. Also, Elon Musk tweeted he was going to sell all of his worldly positions just last week. Now he's about to have a giant payday. We'll have those details when the exchange continues. Welcome back. It's a buy edition of The Biggest Calls today on some surprising names. So let's get to it. We begin with Harley Davidson with an upgrade to buy at Argus today and a $30 price target despite fears of a recession and reduced discretionary spending. Argus says Harley's hiring freezes and salary reductions are positive to stem the fallout from COVID and that the acting CEO's turnaround plan is a step in the right direction. Shares up 3% to just over 20 bucks today. Next up is L Brands getting a boost from BMO, which upgrades it to outperform with a $17 target. They're saying the death of Victoria's Secret is exaggerated and the pullback from coronavirus could be an opportunity for it to shrink to grow. They're also saying that Bath & Body Works remains undervalued. L Brands down 1.5%, trading under $12 today. And finally, DraftKings getting coverage with a buy rating at Canaccord and a $25 price target. That firm saying that DraftKings has long runway for growth as more states legalize sports betting and that they bear all the hallmarks of a classic internet disruptor. Of course, the hit from COVID-19 shuttering sports is immediate, but Canaccord says it's only temporary. Uh, DraftKings shares up 3% today. As of right now, about 4 million homeowners are either in government or bank forbearance programs. That means they're delaying their monthly mortgage payments due to financial hardship from COVID-19. But as the economy reopens, what is the exit from these forbearance plans? Diana Olick is here with these important details everyone should know. Diana. Yeah, Kelly, the numbers continue to increase already four times what federal regulators initially predicted would be by the beginning of May. But some soon will be closing in on the end date of their forbearances. It's initially a 90 day plan to delay your mortgage payments, though it can be extended for up to a year. But this is not a freebie. So we want to explain how you get out of it. Now, your servicer should reach out to you 30 days before your plan is up to discuss the following options. First, You could make up all your missed payments in one lump sum, but you do not have to. Let's make that clear. You don't have to. Instead, your servicer can set up a repayment plan for you over time. That is by adding a bit to your regular regular monthly payment. If you cannot afford that, then your servicer can set up a mortgage modification, 
which changes the terms of your loan, either extending it and or lowering the interest rate. Now, there are several different modification options, and some will require documentation of your hardship. So do not lie up front and claim you need forbearance when you really don't. That is real financial fraud, and it will come back to bite you in the end. Kelly? So another question Diane everyone has is, is whether being in one of these programs hurts your credit score. Well, initially it does not. In fact, in the CARES Act, that is the Government's Relief Act that this is all a part of, servicers may not report these delinquencies, these forbearance plans, to the credit bureau. So there is no hit to your credit. Now, it's still kind of uncertain if you do go into the mortgage modification programs at the end, which a lot of people haven't gotten there yet, but they may, that could hurt your ability to get another loan or even to refinance another loan. Say you have a second mortgage or you have a mortgage on a different home. That could be a problem for you. So we're going to see how that turns out as it plays out. Yeah. All right, Diana, thanks. We appreciate it. Diana Olick is tracking how all of this works for the housing market. Turning now to transportation, we've got a coronavirus surprise in the autos world. United Airlines announcing layoffs and Elon Musk on track for a mega payout. Let's talk all of it with Phil LeBeau, who joins us live from Chicago. Phil, and let's start with auto sales terrible for April, uh, except for pickup trucks. Well, overall, for the entire country, they were awful. But when you look at certain markets, and specifically when you look at pickup trucks, they are red hot right now. And the reason is because of the 0% financing for 84 months. At this Chevy dealership outside Fort Worth, They've only got 20 days supply left. They, they can't find them around the country. And as a result, when you look at the Sun Belt and the Southwest, look at the increases in pickup sales in April. I mean, we're talking double-digit increases in Raleigh, Houston, Phoenix, while nationwide, when you factor in the cities that were shut down in the north and the, in the Midwest, it was down 12%. Bottom line is this. Fiat Chrysler today reporting their earnings, and on the conference call, CEO Mike Manley said he's never seen uh, inventory levels at this rate, this low, Remember, tomorrow we're going to be talking with the CFO of General Motors, Divya Surya Deborah. They're going to be reporting their earnings. We'll talk to her about the demand for pickup trucks as well as the balance sheet and the liquidity situation at General Motors. Phil, is it so my neighbors just got a great deal on their car leases. Uh, is it a great time right now if you're shopping for a car to either buy or lease one? And how long do you think that'll last? Well, it's more of a buyer's market right now, and it really depends on what you're looking for. Look, if you're looking for a mid-sized car, boy, can you get a great deal right now. Why? Nobody wants a mid-sized car. And it really depends on the type of vehicle and where you live, and that's going to drive what kind of a deal you're going to get. You mean like a mid-sized sedan? The, the, the kind a, mid, a mid-sized sedan. Yeah, like the, the car go. no one drives anymore. Got it. Okay, let's move on to United. Uh, some layoffs here. They're saying they're going to cut 30% of management yep. jobs in October. The shares are down a little less than 2%. Uh, but folks thought maybe with some government support they would have been able to avoid this move. Well, remember, the government support not only for United but for all the major airlines, it only required that they keep people employed and they have no major layoffs until the end of September. Come October 1st, and what United has said is, look, if we don't see an improvement in passenger levels, we're going to be losing billions in, in money every quarter. So we have got to make the adjustment. And this is the reason why. The low passenger levels. Yeah, it's ticked up a little bit, very little within the last two weeks. But we're still down 94% compared to where we were a year ago. And so as a result, you're going to see some airlines who are saying, okay, we've got to figure out what we're going to do in terms of bringing people in, convincing them it's safe to fly. Last night, we talked to the CEO of Frontier. He said, you know what? You want to guarantee an empty middle seat? 
give me 39 bucks, and you can have that middle seat next to you empty if you are concerned about coronavirus. We'll see more of these types of situations, maybe not specifically like this, but this type of situation to convince people it's safe to fly. Wow. So it's basically, you know, there's baggage fees there. You know, there's this and that fees for airlines. If, if you want an empty middle seat, he's saying you can put that in your own shopping cart. Uh, that is correct. Now, right now, you'll probably get a middle seat empty on most flights. But eventually, Kelly, people will start flying again and somebody will be sitting next to you. Are they going to have to comply with federal social distancing, though, Phil? Or is that, you know, I mean, are there going to be standards? Because at some point it may not be up to them. That would be up to the DOT. The right. DOT would have to regulate that. And so far, they haven't said anything. Yeah, so far. Uh, before you go, I have to ask you about uh, Tesla. Because of the share price move, what's this mean for Elon yeah. Musk and his payday? Well, it's a big payday. Remember, the deal was if they could maintain a market cap of greater than $100 billion, an average daily market cap of greater than $100 billion for six months, he would trigger the first of 12 tranches, which are part of the new pay uh, agreement that was made between him and the board of directors back in 2018. So what does that mean? They've done that. Now he gets 1.69 million Tesla options, each at $350.02. If he were to go and buy those and then immediately sell at today's price, he would have $720 million profit. Now, we should note that Elon Musk generally has just been hanging on to his stock. He's not, he's not the type to get it and then immediately dump it. So it's a huge payday. As always, Kelly, it's when you sell. And we don't know when Elon Musk may sell some of this. Right. Um, still, the equity performance has been pretty remarkable. And I mean, I don't know if you dug any deeper into why he tweeted he's going to sell his physical possessions, if that has some something to do with maybe wanting to, to fend off uh, criticism about this big payday and the people who say, yeah. oh, that's why you wanted everybody to report to work. Yeah, if, if there are a million theories that are out there, none of which you can sit there and really hang your hat on. Um, I, I don't, none of them I ascribe to right now, Kelly. And we've reached out to Tesla and to Elon Musk to see if they have any comment. They have not commented on his tweet from last week. I am not surprised. Phil, for all things transportation, as always, thank you. Good stuff. You bet. Our Phil LeBeau. Got some breaking news uh, now from our Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre, what's going on? Hey, Kelly, Uber and Lyft shares, they are falling. They briefly dipped into negative territory, but certainly off session highs. And this comes on news that the city attorneys in San Francisco, Los Angeles and San Diego are partnering with state attorneys, so the California attorney general, to sue Uber and Lyft, alleging worker misclassification. Now, if you remember back, we were talking a lot more about it at the beginning of this year, but Assembly Bill 5, this is the bill that was passed in California that requires Uber, Lyft and other sharing economy companies to classify their workers, their independent contractors as employees. And there has been a battle here in California over this classification. Of course, Uber and Lyft, they are reporting earnings this week. There's a lot more on their plate. But this is a reminder that there are regulatory issues that they still have to deal with as they see gross bookings fall off a cliff, as they are laying off employees and as they really struggle to turn their business around during this difficult time. So they're picking now. I mean, Deirdre, do you think there's any link between coronavirus and, and the timing of this? Because Uber and Lyft are on their back heels, obviously, already. Uh, people, you know, it's a lot harder for people to say, yeah, I want to share a car right now. Or maybe the drivers feel unsafe showing up. 
Yeah, that has been a huge theme throughout the global pandemic is there's a very vocal group of drivers who don't think that Uber and Lyft are essentially protecting them. They're not giving them protective equipment, but also they're not providing benefits. That's what happens when they're independent contractors. They don't get to share in the same kind of benefits that corporate employees do. They're essentially out on their own. Some like that because it gives them flexibility, but that's harder and harder to justify at a time when coronavirus... There's this outbreak and they have to put essentially their lives in danger to be these essential workers and get people from one place to another. Interesting. Uh, Again, the shares are turning lower on that. Deirdre, thanks uh, with the latest news there for Uber and Lyft. Well, it's been a a wild ride for stocks over all the past three months. We're going to take a look at how the ongoing pandemic is changing investor behavior. That's right after this. Welcome back with a rally day for stocks. Dow's up 350 points, uh, S&P's up 50, and the Nasdaq's up 177. So a 2% gain for the Nasdaq is almost putting it into the green for the year, if you can believe it. Well, if you want to own shares of Amazon or Alphabet, but the more than $1,000 price target is scaring you away, Charles Schwab has a new solution, the company announcing what it calls stock slices. Investors can now own shares of companies for as little as $5, even if the shares themselves cost more. We've seen this uh, from rivals. Investors can now purchase a single stock slice or up to 10 different slices at once. And Schwab says this new service will be commission-free. And the economic shutdown is changing investor behavior. One of the biggest trends is the rise of online investing. J.P. Morgan's U-Invest trade account opening soaring 400 percent during this period. Joining me with more on these changes and what that means across generations, too, is Kelly Keough. She's head of digital and client solutions at J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, So, Kelly, what can you tell us? Well, we have seen that COVID-19 has definitely accelerated the use of digital and financial services And we believe that change is going to be here with us forever for both advisors and for clients. Our advisors are working from home, providing advice to our clients using Zoom each and every day, many times a day. And for our investors, we are seeing them. We've saw 200 percent increase in trades over the last two months. We also have seen that they are participants in the market in terms of buys each and every day since we saw the onset of the market volatility. We have seen more buys than sells. In fact, we're seeing 65% of the trades that have been going are actually buys. Wow. You know, what most surprised me is that people still exist who don't trade online. (laughs) So, yeah, I I almost didn't even know there was any other way to do it at this point. So, and and I have actually an interesting personal anecdote about this. I tried to execute a a trade through Chase, and they said you have to open this. You invest. Long story short, it took like three days to open the account. The trade never went through, and as a result, you guys saved me a lot of money. So, I want to thank you for the. for a little bit of a delay built into that processing time. I assume I wouldn't experience that if the account were already up and running. No, and you shouldn't typically experience that. In fact, our our clients typically experience that the accounts are opened in real time within the hour. And we saw over the last three months, in fact, our account openings have surged so that it was at the peak, really 400% increase in the amount amount of accounts that were opened. And we're seeing clients fund those accounts faster than ever so that they can take advantage of the the changes that are going on in the marketplace. Yeah, this was a Sunday night. So for sure, there was not real time trading uh, going on. But uh, again, it, we chuckle about it at home because it turned out to be a blessing. Um, so you mentioned that more people have been buying than selling. Is there any other insight you can offer us about kind of generational buying and selling or the kinds of things, uh, the, kind, the kinds of investments different age groups are making? 
Yes. Well, overall, we've seen, interestingly, that clients are buying more travel stocks than we've ever seen before and not as much big tech as we've seen earlier in the year. But then if we look generationally, we see that our older clients are actually shifting money in a way they haven't before from investments to deposits. Really, our boomers are trying to preserve capital and manage their risk. On the other hand, our younger clients have been more likely to use you invest or actually we're seeing then more of an uptake in terms of the um, account openings that we've seen and the funding that they've moved money into the markets to take advantage of where the markets are going. That's fascinating. So you're seeing people buying more travel stocks and less big tech in general, like mm-hmm. you said, more buys than sells on, on any given day that people have been in the market. And I, I mean, it, it kind of speaks to a couple of different trends. One is that you know, the whole idea that retail is dumb money is an old idea and it's not and that's no longer true. And and the other maybe is that uh, it tells us that that is consensus and then then makes me afraid (laughs) if that's consensus that, you know, people are so quick to buy these travel stocks that maybe maybe there is a, a rougher slog ahead. I don't know. Warren Buffett was selling the airlines. Well, I can't really comment on if they I think really our retail investors are taking advantage of the momentum that's going on. Um, and they're looking to us for help as they're going through this. So what they're looking for from us is they're looking for real up-to-date information on the markets. They're using our J.P. Morgan proprietary research to help inform the trades that they're making. Mm-hmm. And importantly, they're actually coming and flooding our client calls that we're having each and every week. So they're looking for our perspective on the markets yeah. and for us to help guide them through this time. Fascinating. Kelly, with an eye, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Kelly Keough with J.P. Morgan Chase. Don't go anywhere. Still ahead on Power Lunch, top of the hour. We're going to have much more on today's rally, including the surge in crude oil. We're going to talk to the CEO of Parsley Energy about how they're faring and get his outlook for prices. And thanks to the fine print and some PPP loans, small businesses could be left with big tax bills. The fight that's brewing over that government aid will have the latest. We'll be right back. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.